So uh, we'll gonna, we're going to be continuing to study in uh, Daniel today as, as you are, I'm sure you've put two and two together so far after reading that section. That will be the passage we're going to look at. Um, it's, it's a big one and I'm going to handle it a little differently. Um, I tried to write a sermon uh, the way that I normally do where I work each line and uh, I realized uh, that with all of the kings and exchanges, one king for another. And there's literally like four Ptolemies represented here, four Antiochuses, including Epiphanes. There's three Seleucus. There's so many kings and things happening here that uh, I realized very quickly that I, if I handled it the way that I normally do, I would probably bog you down with so much information. You would uh, be as I was as I was writing, absolutely clueless as to what's playing out. Uh, so I'm going to uh, spend more time giving an overview and summarizing some of the lines I'll walk through. Uh, and that is not to uh, degrade or downplay uh, the importance of God's Word in this area. Uh, but I don't believe that we come here every Sunday for a history lesson. Uh, we come here to, to, uh, to obviously analyze history and, uh, when it's in the text. But uh, our main goal is, is always to uh, learn from the Lord and learn the bigger lessons and things that are here and the principles and things like that. So, so I'm not going to bog you down with, with a, a lot of information, although I would love to uh, have a conversation with you after the fact or even provide you with a resource. Um, but I'm going to summarize and give overview, uh, and I think that's just the best way to, to handle this text on a Sunday morning on a Sunday morning. Maybe on a Sunday night over a series of Sunday nights, it, it might be a better idea to walk through these things uh, really slowly, but we're going to speed things up. And uh, last Sunday, we did begin to uh, uh, study Daniel's fourth vision. That's what we're looking at. Um, and it's basically covered in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So those three chapters are devoted to his fourth and final vision. Uh, we looked at the first part of this fourth vision, which deals with the location and the timing and, and also uh, an interesting thing that happened, and that was the 21-day delay uh, that uh, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, I believe that's who it was, the messenger from heaven, uh, was held up for 21 days by a prince demon and, and couldn't get God's answer to Daniel uh, the same day that the answer was submitted. And I just, I, how many of you were just kind of blown away by the way that text is? It's just kind of the spiritual warfare that's there and the things that actually play out. And I just was kind of fascinated by all of it. But that's what we focused on last Sunday. That's kind of the first part of his fourth vision. And today we will begin to study the prophetic content of the vision. So last week was... Here's where it happened, and, and here's why it was delayed. This week, we'll begin to analyze, study um, the prophetic content. You know, it's God's answer to Daniel. Here is what's going to play out in the future, Daniel. This is what you've been asking for. So we're going to begin to look at the prophetic content. And as I said, not in an exhaustive way, uh, but I'm hoping uh, there's enough, we're covering enough of the information here, um, and we're pulling from it a, a really good and solid application. Uh, so we're going to start to look at the prophetic content. Um, and chapters 11 and 12 are really divided as follows. You have verses 2 through 35. That's what Robin just uh, read so well, uh, better than I ever could in front of people. Um, and, and those are prophecies dealing with Persia and Greece. Okay, so 2 through 35 deals with prophecies concerning Persia and Greece. And of course, Persia is the empire that Daniel is living in at this time. That is the, the superpower that's in place. Then 35 through 45, that'd be the rest of this chapter. Those are prophecies that deal with Antichrist. Uh, and, and I've been referring to him as the last earthly king, the last earthly kingdom. And I know Jesus uh, is an earthly king, but he's not a king that's of the earth. He is and he isn't. So uh, Antichrist is really kind of the last world ruler before Jesus uh, comes and, and deals with that. So 35 and 45 deal with Antichrist. 
Uh, and that depends on, I guess, your eschatology. You might think that it still deals with Antiochus Epiphanes. I don't see how it can because there's things that he did not fulfill. So we're going to say 35 to 45 is about Antichrist. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, that's the entire chapter. And those are prophecies concerning Israel's final deliverance. And uh, that's really what Daniel is, is after in the text. He, uh, he, you know, so troubled by what was playing out with the nation as they're tra transitioning back to their homeland in Jerusalem, and they're not really doing it well, and he's so concerned about their future. And this is what he's been praying for. God, give me a vision of what's actually going to play out and how it's going to work. And so I think 12, 1 through 13, that really is the thrust of God's answer to him, and that is what's going to bring him any level of peace in the midst of the tumultuous time he was living in. Uh, one of the things that, that God is known for, you know, he has these attributes, um, uh, these would be things that characterize him, uh, and things that just simply represent who he is. But one of the things that God is known for is his omniscience. Um, omniscience is a fancy word for all knowledge. Um, God literally has all knowledge, not some, not partial all. He literally knows all things, past, present, and future. I would say that God is infinite in His knowledge. There is no limitation to it at all. And, and of course, uh, we all have knowledge and possess some level of knowledge, and we're all hopefully growing in our knowledge of God and, and of certain things. Uh, but we have to be taught, and we have to grow, and we have to learn, and our knowledge has to be expanded through process, through learning, through trial and error and all that. You've also got wisdom that kind of plays into all of that. But God has all knowledge, something that we do not have. He literally knows all things past, present, and future. He is infinite in His knowledge. Um, someone once said that, um, and I think I know what they meant, uh, uh, but they weren't accurate in their statement. They weren't correct. Someone once said, there is nothing God cannot do. There are a number of things that God cannot do, and one of them is learn. You can't learn when you have all knowledge. God doesn't sit up there and go, gosh, I wish there was more I could know. We do that down on this side of glory. He has all knowledge, so He is incapable of learning. He doesn't look out over the corridors of time and study human nature and people and learn from them and then respond he has all knowledge. So one of the things that he cannot do is, is learn. He cannot learn. He has it all. He knows it all. He also cannot sin, and that is because he is holy and perfect. It is impossible for him to sin. I certainly wish that I had that attribute. Uh, I wouldn't be, spend half my time being heartbroken because of the things that I do and the foibles and foolishness. Um, he, he cannot sin. He cannot learn. And I think one of, the, one of the ones that really floats my boat and makes me excited is that he, he cannot in any way, shape, or form renege on his promises because he's what we call immutable, which means unchanging. Are you immutable? Do you change at times things, sometimes for the worse? You know, the moment that you're, uh, uh, you're, you're kind of walking in God's will and things are aligned and you're doing well and then, and then you, because you're not immutable, you change and you change course and you realize, okay, ay ay ay, uh, we change our shoes, we change everything. Everything about us is, is mutable and God doesn't change. I'm so glad that He doesn't change on His promises uh, like we do. How many of you have ever gone back on a promise that you made? Everyone is really quick to keep their hands down. Yeah, so he, he cannot learn. He knows everything. He cannot sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He cannot, uh, he's immutable, so he doesn't renege on his promises. I think that's just, that is just the good stuff. Although I would say that our circumstances and our own failings cause us to believe that He is mutable, that His love has waned for us, that His grace has run out, 
because of our foolishness. And I tell you what gave me a little supercharge was that last song we sang, that song about His grace. It's unreal. It's incredible. That's, I think, why the gospel is the good news, the best news. It is somewhat unbelievable that someone would be so exceedingly great and good to us, unworthy creatures. So I, I just rejoice in the fact that God cannot do certain things, right? He cannot learn. He knows it all. Our passage, this massive text, and I think all of the Bible for that matter, but this passage alone, it illustrates God's omniscience in an incredible way. It illustrates His all-knowledge. It shows that He has knowledge of the future, but not just knowledge of the future, that He knows the minutia, the intimate details, down to the finest things, because this passage has so many little turnings, and this king, and this daughter, and this, and that it doesn't just illustrate the fact that He knows some things, that He knows the intimate details of the future. So I think that's really the thrust of this particular text, that it illustrates his omniscience in a way that uh, the Bible does frequently throughout it, but this is one of those special passages where it, it shows us this in a way that other passages don't. And I think that's really special, and I think that this is something that we need to hear and learn about. And so that's kind of my emphasis today. Um, we should note that the events and people of this passage, 2 through 35, have come and gone. Uh, these, these are, for Daniel, these things were out in the future. For us, they're in the past. These things have already come to pass. And this also illustrates that God is a, a God of His Word, that He's a promise keeper, that He fulfills prophecy. Uh, these events and people are in the past. They have been fulfilled. And verse 36 will be that pivot point or that turning point where we will begin to look forward. So there's something that happens between 35 and 36 that, that now says, okay, we're talking about what is yet to come and yet to be fulfilled. So we'll pick it up at 2a. It says, and now I will show you the truth. So Gabriel has described to Daniel why he was delayed, why he had come, why he was delayed. I would have been here 21 days earlier, but a prince demon held me up. I'm here now, thanks to the archangel Michael. So he's already said these things, and now he tells Daniel, um, it, it signifies that he is ready to begin to unpack God's prophetic timeline and answer to Daniel's prayers. He's about to show Daniel the, uh, the truth concerning Israel's future, okay? So here's that turning point in the text. Look at 2b, and he begins by saying, Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be uh, far richer than all of them. Stop there. When Daniel received this vision, and we've already learned this, Cyrus the Great was the king in charge. He was ruling over Persia or Medo-Persia. After his death, this is the prophecy, after he dies, after he is removed from power, his throne is given up, we see that four more kings would assume the throne and rule over this massive and vast empire. And when we look back, Throughout history and study, we find that the kings were Cambyses, who is the son of Cyrus, Pseudosmyrtus, Darius the Great. That's not to be confused with the other Darius. This is Darius the Great. And then we have Xerxes, who would be the fourth. Uh, he is the king that is featured, highlighted, talked about in the book of Esther. So those are the four kings that would come. Daniel, at this point, does not know who they were going to be. Uh, but we look back throughout history and we can see who they are. And Xerxes was by far the wealthiest and most powerful of the group, just as prophesied. Uh, the empire 
reached its pinnacle while he was king. So it reached its highest point uh, in terms of wealth, power, influence, um, and uh, military supremacy. I had a hard time with that because I thought Cyrus the Great was the the greatest of the Medo-Persian kings, but he was not. Xerxes was by far just as prophesied in this text. He ruled over 127 provinces. That was more territory than the rest, all the way from India to Ethiopia. So so this kingdom was massive. It was vast. He one time uh, threw a a very lavish uh, 180-day feast for all of his officials and servants. This was like the party of all parties. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if other kings, I, I'm not sure that any ever threw a party like this or could, but this was um, a very, very serious uh, party, and you can read about that in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, so this guy, uh, it wasn't that he was a party animal, it was just that he threw these big, lavish parties for his staff, which was really, really big. He also commanded one of the largest armies in ancient history. His army uh, was just absolutely massive and would have rivaled that of of most nations today. A larger, more powerful army than most of the armies in our world today. Now look at 2C. It says, And when he has become strong... Through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Uh, Medo-Persia had become exceedingly mighty and wealthy under King Xerxes, so much so that Xerxes decided to attack a neighboring empire, the kingdom of Greece. And here's where we discover the size of his military, Xerxes assembled a force. Now, this is, this is a long time ago, guys. He assembled a force of over two and a half million soldiers. That is, that is larger than, than most of the armies that you have today in the world. So he assembled a force of 2.6 million soldiers and set off to invade uh, the Greek Empire. But later, he straggled home, broken and beaten. Uh, His vast army had been reduced to near ashes by a young and extremely talented military commander. Okay, look at three. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Okay, Alexander the Great is the mighty king mentioned here in verse 3. He is the military commander who totally shellacked Xerxes and eventually conquered and subjugated all of Medo-Persia. This is a prophecy about this king will rise up and take out Xerxes in the Medo-Persian Empire. This would happen a few years later from, from Daniel's moment here. By 32 years of age, Alexander had gained control of the entire known world from Europe to India. So his kingdom was uh, vastly larger than that of Xerxes. Near the end of his life, he was uh, literally crying in his tent because he had nothing left to conquer. <laughs> he, his words were something to the effect of, he was literally weeping, saying, there's no other worlds to conquer. What am I going to do with my time? Uh, we tend to cry over much lesser things, right? This guy was sad that there were no other kingdoms that he could crush and subjugate. Look at verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, still speaking of Alexander the Great, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Alexander became a drunkard. Uh, Apparently, since he obviously didn't know the coming Messiah and had all of his hope and and security tied up in uh, what he could subjugate, conquer, own, 
uh, which wasn't obviously enough and will never be enough for us if that's where we turn to. Lord knows I'm learning that lesson. He turned to booze and he became a major, major drunkard. And some say that he began to suffer from cirrhosis of the liver and that uh, might be how he died, although I think he was poisoned. But this took place when he was at the zenith, the highest point of his leadership, the highest point of his kingdom. Uh, it's sad to think, right, that somebody works as hard as he did and, and uh, got as far as he did, and then when he's at the very, very top, that is when he dies and, and all of his kingdom is pretty much wiped away or given over to others. It reminds me of, of how we can uh, spend all of our time investing in uh, maybe in I'm not saying it's wrong to think about retirement or these sorts of things. Those are good things. It's a good thing to be a good steward of your money. Uh, I know how that is and how it is to struggle with that. Uh, but sometimes people save and save and save and save, and when they die, it just goes to others who never earned it. That, would ha that's, that happens. You have to find a, a, a wiser way to invest. You don't want, it's not, you know, do you want to leave a nest egg for your family? Well, sure, but, you know... I remember with my stepdad when he died, he died a multi-multi-millionaire, and half of what he died, half of what he had when he died went to the state. <laughs> it went into probate because he didn't have a will. It went to people who never will never ever earn even their own income. And so you have to be wise when you invest, and, and you certainly don't want to be living just for that big, big cash fund uh, because the, Alexander gives us an, an excellent example of what can happen. You can be so successful and, and uh, die in a nanosecond, and then it goes right out to those who uh, never earned it. That happened to him. And maybe because of alcoholism, maybe because he was poisoned by his cupbearer, I think that is it. His, own, his only possible heirs were a brother with a mental disability, so he, he couldn't do the job. He couldn't take over as king of Greece. Uh, he had an illegitimate son. That was not permissible in that day for him. And he had an unborn child of his pregnant wife. Um, all his mentally disabled brother, his illegitimate son, his wife and the uh, and an unborn baby they were all murdered within a matter of months anyways leaving no posterity leaving no heir to the throne they were all killed immediately people came in and said we got to get rid of them so we can get our hands on this power and this wealth and so his own family was wiped out after he died and because of this his vast empire was broken up it was divided into four parts it says the four winds of heaven each ruled by one of his generals Seleucus ruled over Syria and Mesopotamia. Ptolemy ruled over Egypt. Lysimachus ruled over Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. And Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece. Those are the generals that these quadrants uh, were given to. This division was anticipated through the four heads of the leopard in chapter 7, verse 6, and the four prominent horns on the goat, chapter 8, verse 8. So we've already been looking at prophecies concerning these things. After a chaotic power struggle filled with intrigue, assassinations, and a succession of wars, uh, two of the four divisions of Alexander's empire rose to dominance, Egypt and Syria. So those two uh, became greater and more powerful than the other two. And, and, and those are the two that the angel that God here and that the angel and that Daniel did, they all emphasized on those two. The emphasis goes to those two particular quadrants, Egypt and Syria. Why are they significant? They are significant because of their location in relation to Israel. Because what's actually important in this prophecy is what's going to happen with Israel. Well, these two nations that came out of the Greek Empire, one is to the north of Israel, Syria, and one is to the south of Israel. Those are the bordering nations, one to the north, one to the south. And that's why the emphasis in this prophecy is on them, because those two will battle each other back and forth for like 150 years, and Israel's going to be in the middle. It's going to have a, a devastating effect on God's people. 
As I said earlier, I'm not going to uh, handle this text in the same way. I'm going to summarize verses 5 through 20. Uh, They predict years of fighting between these two empires. And uh, and if you want more information, come to me afterwards and I'll give it to you. But I'm going to summarize. I don't want to get into all of the minutiae and bog you down with these details. They're valid, they're good things, but we need to come at them probably not on a Sunday morning. But you've got a prediction here in this chapter that literally doesn't just predict these two empires, but the intimate details in their conflicts. This king, that king, this daughter, that daughter. It's it's like a tennis match between them. You remember? It's like that over and over. And it really is astounding to realize how accurately these prophecies were fulfilled. We look back throughout history, we see how they were fulfilled, and it's just astonishing how accurate God's prophecy is. For example, look at verse 6. Verse 6. The prophecy says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south uh, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. History records that King Ptolemy II of Egypt gave his daughter Berenice to Antiochus II of Syria in order to seal an alliance between the two nations. But in time... Antiochus's wife, uh, an, an evil and power-hungry woman named Laodis, poisoned Antiochus and murdered Berenice and her son. The prophecy in verse 6 was explicitly fulfilled, just down to the word. As we read on, we, we find that additional prophecies were fulfilled in history, verses 7 through 8. And from a, uh, from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and, she, uh, and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Another prophecy. To avenge... The murder of his sister, Berenice, Egypt's Ptolemy III, attacked and defeated Syria. That was the reprisal. You've killed my sister and and the peace agreement or whatever advantage I was trying to gain through that agreement that I had through her. You destroyed that. So he attacked Syria and he defeated him. He put Laodice, that's the wife of his enemy, the ex-wife of his enemy, to death and carried off, it says he carried off their gods, their metal images, their silver and gold vessels, and he returned to Egypt. He returned to Egypt as a victorious king with all of these vessels. In verse 10, we are introduced to Antiochus III of Syria, whose wars against Egypt were marked first by a series of defeats, followed by a series of victories, verses 10 through 16. If you know your history... How many of you have actually studied history? And I'm talking about just world history at this point, not just biblical history. If you know your history, you'll recognize the story of Cleopatra in verse 17. And I'm talking about that super fox, Liz Taylor, with the purple eyes. Beautiful actress. But this is the story in verse 17 of Cleopatra. She is not a work of fiction. She is a real person who lived. Look at the prophecy in 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women, Cleopatra, to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. John Phillips explains that Antiochus III gave his own daughter, Cleopatra, then only 11 years of age, in a treacherous marriage to Ptolemy V of Egypt, a boy of 12. He hoped his daughter would help him uh, complete his control over Egypt. However, she sided with her husband and defeated her father's plans. That's the true story of Cleopatra. 
History tells us that Antiochus III tried to attack Egypt's coastal cities, but was rebuffed by the, rose, uh, the rising Roman armies. You know, see, at this time, Rome is on the rise too. In anger, he returned home and plundered his own land. When he attacked the temple of Jupiter to steal its treasures, his people rose up and murdered him. His body was never found. Consider how this perfectly fulfills Daniel's prophecy in verses 18 through 19. It says, Afterward, he shall uh, turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but uh, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Look at the accuracy here of God's predictions. After Antiochus III was murdered, his son Seleucus IV inherited his father's war debts. This guy was in debt big time. Unable to pay, he sent uh, a tax collector to plunder the temple in Jerusalem. Notice again how history affirms Daniel's prophecy. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. Now the period we have just covered in 5 through 20 spans nearly 150 years and involves a long, long succession of rulers. But in verses 21 through 35, the pace slows and we view just one decade and concentrate on one particular ruler. So we've covered 150 years in like 10 minutes. Again, if you want more detail, connect with me. I'll give it to you. It's there. All of the little exchanges and everything are all there. They all line up perfectly. When we look at history, they all line up perfectly with God's prediction. But I think all of those other details are for another time. Maybe you disagree. That's okay. So now we focus on one decade, one particular ruler. We are introduced to him in verse 21. In his, that's him. In his place shall, a, oh, not in, that's not him. That's the one he succeeds. My bad. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. That's him. To whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This ruler is none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a descendant of the Antiochus kings. I think Antiochus is is, uh, just a name, kind of like Pharaoh. It represents all of the Egyptian kings in a way. Antiochus does as well. Ptolemy, the Ptolemies were kings. That's not like their first name. It was the original guy. Uh, But Antiochus Epiphanes is this... He's this contemptible person who rises to power on the tail end of the Greek empire. Uh, I love how Dr. David Jeremiah uh, refers to him. He calls him the Antichrist of the Old Testament. The Antichrist of the Old Testament. Antiochus Epiphanes, and we have already talked about him a little bit in the previous chapters. He was among the wickedest men who ever lived. Now, this is a a statement that that I make after Hitler, after Stalin, after every other world leader to date. So if this guy ranks right up there among the worst of the worst, not just in the fact that he murdered, but just in his debauchery and wickedness, he he is easily one of the most wicked men, almost like Satan incarnate just walking on earth and destroying everything he touches. He was just a vile, vile king. You would not have wanted to be a Jew during his time, let alone an enemy kingdom. He was a terrible, terrible person. And he had no claim to the Syrian throne. He had no claim to it at all. But he deceived and he finagled his way into power through bribes and gifts, just as Daniel had predicted, right? It says... He came in without warning, and he obtained the kingdom by flatteries. So this was prophesied long before he came, and he was going to get the kingdom not through the normal succession, but through bribery, flatteries, finagling, all of that. He manipulated his way into power, and I would say uh, that might very well be a characteristic and trademark of all the most uh, wicked rulers throughout all history. They don't get... 
that kingdom and those empires through the right way. They always do it through some deception. Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall uh, devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Then as Daniel prophesied, Antiochus stirred up a battle against the south. That would be Egypt. That would be the Ptolemies. But he couldn't win on the battlefield. He didn't have the power, the military strength to beat the Ptolemies. He, he just couldn't do it. Verse 27 says, And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. The two stalemated kings agreed to a peace treaty, which both uh, quickly broke, you know, these guys made agreements with one another, but they, they, they weren't immutable. They turned against each other immediately. After yet another failure, Antiochus vented his absolute rage. He couldn't get what he wanted down south. The alliances that he formed broke. He was a bloodthirsty, power-hungry king. And when he got beat down south again, he couldn't get what he wanted. He vented his anger on Israel. Remember, Israel's caught in the middle between these two warring empires, and Israel pays the price because this guy was a big crybaby. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus Epiphanes, out of Anger and frustration, hostility after being beat down south and not securing Egypt the way that he wanted at this time. He invades Jerusalem. He rapes and murders women. He slaughters children on sight. He goes ISIS mode. If you've been looking at what's playing out in the news, he turns into ISIS in a sense. He erected an image of Zeus in the Jewish temple demanded that the Jews worship it. If you do not worship this image, I will kill you. He also stopped all Jewish sacrifices. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. This is, uh, these are the reasons why he is uh, considered by the Jewish people absolute, one of the absolute worst leaders in all of history. Not only did he sacrifice a pig, which is uh, swine. This is an animal that the Jews do not eat. They consider it unclean according to God's law. Not only did he sacrifice that kind of beast on the altar, he took its blood and flung it throughout the temple. He covered the walls with it. He covered the ground. He covered the doors, the entryways, the tapestries. He took that pig's blood and spread it throughout this entire room. Thus, defiling the entire temple. Not only did he do that, but he force-fed the pork to the Jewish priests. That's a bad dude, man. The temple was desolate. It was made desolate through his actions. That's the abomination of desolation. No Jew could go there because Antiochus Epiphanes had made it an abomination. But as Daniel prophesied, a small band of Jewish patriots inspired a rebellion and turned things around. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who uh, violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The apocryphal book of Maccabees tells the story of a family of brave Jews who led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes finally bringing his reign of terror and wickedness to the end. How many of you have heard of the Maccabees, that family? God raised them up and used them to uh, destroy that evil and to restore uh, the temple and its services. What is the holiday that the Jews celebrate that commemorates that event? The Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It was a, a liberating moment for them in history. Now, at this point, 
there's a break in the action. Uh, this is where 35 kind of cuts off and we fast forward to the future. Uh, John Phillips explains, a clear-cut break in this remarkable prophecy occurs between verses 35 and 36. The prophetic history is continuous right down to the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Then it leaps over the ages and comes back into focus at the time of Antichrist. And this is where we will pause uh, for now and pick back up in verse 36 next Sunday, and we'll, we'll study the rest of the text, and I will uh, treat that particular section differently because it's shorter and it, the emphasis is on this last king, Antichrist. Lord willing, if we all come back together next week. Let's begin to wrap it up. Can you believe how perfectly Daniel's prophetic vision lines up with history? And, and, and you know, make no mistake, I, I barely even covered the material. I, I, I touched on a few things there. We skipped over verses. We skipped over kings. We skipped over all sorts of stuff. I didn't even cover all of the material, but I think we've seen enough of it to know that this prophecy lines up perfectly with history, down to the T, down to the minute details. And we can see how this passage and history together affirm God's omniscience, right? This passage, when we look at it and compare it to history, it screams God knows everything. It just screams it. He really does know all things past, present, and future. And we must know and understand. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges. We must understand. He does know all things past, present, and future, but we must understand that He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. He does. Is that tough to believe, though, at times? Is it tough to... Uh, to even ponder that in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, especially if it's a, a difficult and hard thing, a tragic thing, that in the midst of all of that, God is orchestrating that event, those circumstances, uh, in such a way to bring about good for you. It's so tough for me uh, to, to comprehend that at times. It, it's, it, it's tough to believe, right? Have you ever said to yourself, how can cancer play into this? How can um, the death of a beloved leader that, that Paul and Cammie and I used to serve with, who just passed away yesterday, how can that possibly be playing into God's goodness for me? How can the events of the Middle East, how can, how can that be, how could that possibly be beneficial to the kingdom of God, to the church, to the nation of Israel? How could losing a child To my sanctification. How could losing uh, my job, how could having an, an autistic child, did you know that, that married couples who have an autistic child about 75% of the men in divorce because these kids are tough. How can that? I don't know. But they do. But they do. They do.
They do. I think uh, one of the things that we must take away from this passage is the fact that God is omniscient, that He, yeah, He's working all these things out to achieve His purposes and are good, the good for us, the good of His people, but because He's omniscient, He knows us and understands us in ways that, that are just beyond comprehension that he understands pain, that he understands our failures. Right, if he has all knowledge, then obviously he has all knowledge of who I am. That's frightening. Because I have knowledge, all knowledge of who I am in a sense. I know what I think, I know what I do. That's a bit frightening. Because sometimes my life doesn't square with his will the heck am I saying? Almost all times. <laughs> I just gave myself way too much credit. He knows us in ways that only He can know us. He knows the good, He knows the bad, He knows the ugly. And somehow, He's still for us. Half the time, I'm not even for myself. You know, in a similar way, He is working in and through our circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when I say similar, I mean similar to history, right? We've, we've looked at a little bit of history here and, and, and prophetic history, and these things are fulfilled, and you've got one battle after the other and one rise and one fall and... You've got all these things playing out, and he was working in and through all of that, getting his people, the nation of Israel, to where he wants them to be so that he can redeem them. And in a similar way, he is working in and through our circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to bring about his purposes for us. You know... Every tragedy plays into who He's making us. Every victory, all of it. Sanctification, you know, being made like Jesus is, 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 is just like history. It is filled with battles and losses and victories, is it not? Isn't that the Christian walk? Would we all agree that bearing our cross isn't easy? That it can be very, very difficult at times? Sometimes I just try to stow it away. I don't want to look at that thing today because I know what it means. Would we not all agree that dying to self is the hardest thing we will endeavor in this life? It is the one thing that I, I feel is, think that is, believe is, is, is just darn near impossible. Just when I think I'm doing it, I find that I'm not. I don't need... Persian, Babylonian, Greek, Roman idols. To st I just have to have myself. I'm the biggest idol of them all. I worship myself more than I worship my God. But deep down inside, if we are true believers... We know that we want to die to self. We know that we want to exalt God above all. We know that, and that's what we keep coming back to, right? It is a battle. It is like history. The war that we wage is not 
It's a spiritual battle that includes our own flesh, our own will. Just as it is with history and what God is working out through history and all these evil kings and all of this stuff, He's positioning and getting His people to the place in which He will fulfill His promises to them. It is the same thing for us. No, no matter what, in the end, for the true people of God, those who wage this war, those who fight and fight and fight and go from victory to failure, those who fight, those who fight, those who love God, in the end, He will achieve His grand purpose for us. I can't stop it. I certainly feel as if I can. He will fulfill His purposes for us. You may not believe it right now. You may not feel that it's true and feelings are deadly. You may not think it. You may not think that you're being made like Christ. You may not think that you will be like Christ, Christian, but you will. You will. It is certain. It is fixed. In the meantime, we, we press on and we fight. Each day we fight. We do as Paul said, we, we run the race. We run the race. Each day you got you to gotta run the race. In the meantime, we have to learn to, to really cling to Jesus. We have to learn to stay close to Jesus, right? He is our rock. He is our anchor. It's only through Him.